If you would, take your Bibles and turn back to Psalm 130, where we read a little earlier. Forgiveness isn't exactly popular in the day in which we live, especially in the cancel culture we find ourselves in. In fact, someone said if forgiveness were an animal, it might be put on the endangered species list. But now and then, however, we come across a scene in a book or a movie or on the news that demonstrates the power of forgiveness. And when we do, it really shakes us. Um, It really demands, really, a moment of silence because of its rarity in our culture. One example of that is a true life story that was recorded in a courtroom in 2019 after an off-duty police officer killed his brother. Uh, A guy by the name of Brant Jean was allowed to give what's called a victim impact statement. And he addressed Amber Geiger, the woman who shot his brother and killed him. And this is what he said. If you are truly sorry, I can speak for myself. I forgive you. And I know that if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. I don't think that anyone can just say it. But again, I am speaking for myself. But I want you to know I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not going to say to you today, I hope that you rot and die just like my brother did. But I want you to know that I want the best for you. And then he did something that was even more astounding to everyone that was in the courtroom that day. He raised his hand and asked that the judge would give him permission to go over and to give Miss Geiger a hug. And he did. And the image of them grieving and crying and hurting, but yet hugging, was one that you could really never forget. And as people got wind of this news and the scene in the courtroom, it just flooded the news and all over the country. Why? Because that kind of forgiveness is incredibly uncommon with us. In fact, we would say it's shocking grace. Yet as riveting, really truthfully, as that scene was, the scene in Psalm 130 and the forgiveness of our sins that God gives is really ratcheting up that forgiveness quite a number of levels. In fact, the psalmist goes over and over to say that this kind of forgiveness that we drastically and desperately need only comes with God. See, not so common with us. But with God, it's a completely another, another story. It's infinitely shocking. And so the text says, Psalm 130 and verse 4, with you, see the emphatic emphasis on God, with you there is forgiveness. Verse 7, with the Lord there is steadfast love. With him, verse 7, there is plenteous for redemption and forgiveness. See, that's what the psalmist wants you and I to get a hold of. In fact, he wants it us to allow it to get a hold of us is that this truth, only the Lord, only the Lord can forgive all of your iniquities. I thought about this text and I thought to myself, wouldn't it be wonderful if you and God could have a scene like that courtroom scene in your life? Wouldn't it be so amazing after all the pain that you and I have caused God because of our sin that if by his grace, 
When you stand before God, he would turn to you and look you in the eye and say, I want you to know, I speak for myself. I love you. I forgive you. And I want you to be eternally part of my family. See, that would be incredible news. And that would be forgiveness on a level that we probably most of us couldn't quite comprehend. And that's what the psalmist does. The psalmist wants us to be impacted. He wants us to feel it, not just read it, feel it. And so he asks and at the same time answers in this psalm three questions about God's forgiveness. And they are these. Why do we need it? Where do we get it? How can we have it? So let's unpack each one of them this morning and find out about the power of God's forgiveness in your life and mine. The first one Why do we need it? Why do we need God's forgiveness? Well, most commentators think that this is a psalm that was written after the exile, after God and his grace and power redeemed them out of Babylon, brought them back to the promised land. It's a penitential psalm. There are seven psalms that talk about Israel and their sin and their repentance. It's also, if you look at the very beginning in the title of the psalm, it is a song of ascents. And what that means is, is that when Worshippers, Jewish worshipers were going through one of the festivals and going up to Jerusalem. As they walked up to Jerusalem, they could see the temple. And this is the song that they would sing. They would begin to sing the song of remembering how God forgave them and how they were exiled and they were in Babylon and they were horribly in slavery. And God redeemed them out of that. And so they remembered and they sang the song. And that's why centuries later, this song got another title. In Latin, it was De Profundis. And what it means is out of the depths. It's the very first few words of this song because it's so heart-wrenching. He's out of the depths. That phrase is used numerous times in the Psalms and it always describes being dug out of a pit or even out of a grave and often out of the depths of an ocean. And no matter what the image is, it's that you are deep in it. Now see the psalm, and you can't see it much in the English, but it begins and ends, verse 1 and 8, with this little preposition, out of. And what the psalmist has in his mind is how God, we were in, in our depths of our sins, and he brought us out of the depths of the sin and out of our bondage. And at the end, he says, you brought us out and forgave all of our iniquities. And what he wants you to do is to join him in this journey, And it didn't didn't start in a pleasant place because he was in the depths. But see, by the end of the psalm, God brought him out of the depths because he brought him out of all of his iniquities. And he's a completely new person with a completely new perspective because of the mercy and grace that God shows him. And see, out of the depths is talking about how he feels about being overwhelmed by his sin. Just read Jonah. When God threw him in the ocean, and he was in the big fish in the bottom of the sea, the Bible says he wrote these words, for you cast me into the deep. Feel that? Into the heart of the seas. 
and the floods surround me. All your billows and your waves pass over me. See, he's feeling it. He's feeling the guilt. He's feeling the shame. It's like someone has buried him in the depths of the sea, and he's surrounded by water on every side. Willow, it says billows and waves pass over him. He's overwhelmed. Another Psalm 69.3 says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. It's emotional. It's emotional. You know, perhaps you're here this morning, and that's where you are. Uh, maybe not everyone notices that, and certainly you just sitting here this morning, no one may know all the things going on in your life, but you know what it means, and you know what it feels like to be in the depths. Have you ever been in your life where you said, Pastor Walker, I'm up to my neck. I really am. I'm up to my neck. You know, I had this problem and I made this choice. And listen, it's ruining this relationship and, and, you know, also affected my finances. You know, and I used to be in church and I used to be active. And, you know, now I hardly ever pick up my Bible. And, and here's what you're saying to yourself. See, I know what it's like. Spurgeon wrote a sermon once called A Great Gospel for Great Sinners. And in it he said, we are all in the mire, we have, but we have not all sunk to equal depth. See, all of us this morning, because we're sinners, we are in the mire. We have sunk in sin. Now, some have sunk to different levels and depths than others, but the reality is that we've all understood what the psalmist says. You might even have said at your time, one time in your life, I'm in so deep, I don't know if there's a way out of it. It's picturing someone who's panicking. They're in the middle of the ocean, and they don't see shore. I was a lifeguard, and my job as a youth pastor, part of it was summer camp. And I had to take lifeguard training at the YMCA. And so they tell you that when someone's drowning, they panic, and they, they're not going to worry about you one iota if you're trying to save them. And they'll grab a hold of you, and you'll go down with them if you're not careful. So they taught you that you had to come up and swim, and it's kind of frightening to the person who sees you coming because they think that you're the savior that they need, and then you swim off and go around them, and they think, oh, you're just leaving me. But you have to go around to the back, and you have to come up behind them when they can't see you, because then they'll try to grab you around the neck, and they'll choke you, and it'll be over. So I learned to have to, and, and I did a little boy in our little lake at the camp that I had, and he was thrashing, and he was, and I came around the backside, and I came around, and you have to have a life that you come across his shoulder, around his neck, and you immobilize him. Why? You know why? Because they're panicking. They're in over their head. They're afraid that up to your neck would be a privilege because they're going to go under. And the psalmist says, that's exactly how I feel. Year after year, I'm in this position. I can't get out from under it. Will it ever be over? Will anything ever change in my life? And you begin to feel the weight of it, crushing, pleading, begging God, confessing it, making bargains. And you begin to ask yourself, am I in it too deep? Have I gone too far this time? And the psalmist says this, if you, Lord, verse 3, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities. You see what he's saying? God, my sin is so many, it's so much. If you would mark iniquities, 
And it means to keep track or keep record. God, if you would write down, if you're writing down all my iniquities, see, I have no hope. Because who can stand? It's a rhetorical question. And the answer is nobody could. Nobody could stand before a righteous God if he's keeping track of sin. Spurgeon said it's a dreadful fact that this if is really no if. Today we live in a culture where many people, including some of God's people, have accepted and believed the lie that no one's keeping track. But the scriptures say to the contrary. The problem is God does keep track. He does keep count of our iniquities. In Revelation 20 and verse 12, it says, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by their works according to the things that were written in the books. See, there will be a judgment day and God is keeping the books. He will open them up and he will judge them and everyone will give an account for all their works. Why? Because God is keeping track. And the psalmist says, disheartened, that if God's keeping track, I have no hope. No one can stand before God. That's the, that's the problem. But we like to minimize or downplay our iniquities. And that's what the word is used twice in this text, once at the beginning and the end. Iniquities, to fear off, veer off the path, to stray from what you know is right. And if we minimize how serious our sin is, and we don't believe what the psalmist says about not being able to stand before God, see, it has a dangerous side effect, and that is that minimizes the staggering rescue that's necessary for us to be right with God. One commentator said, too many think lightly of their sin and therefore lightly of their Savior. And we sometimes think that our sin isn't that bad because we like to compare it with someone else. And I might not be all this, we might tell ourselves, but at least I'm not so-and-so, and we list off their names, and we find someone that we can compare to that we're not quite as bad. And see, when we think about our sinfulness and the need of our forgiveness from God, we have to be clear on one thing, and that is the magnitude of the problem. I don't know if you've ever gone through this, but I've done it, believe it or not, more than once. I've gone to the mall, and whether a mall I'm not familiar with or on vacation or a mall around here, and you go in there and you're in a hurry, and I, I walk inside, I do all this stuff, and then I'm on the way out, I think, oh, where'd I park? You ever done that? And I, I thought, you know, I normally park here, and I go off this exit, I go, I didn't do that today. Because I was going to go somewhere else that I normally don't go. And so I go into the park, and, and then you go, oh, yeah, I don't know where it is. And so I go out the door, I think I'm going in the parking lot, and there's a ton of cars out there, right? And so I start walking around, looking for my car, and I can't find it. So I go back in. And I go back in another door, go out in the door, and I try to find out where I'm parking. And then I realize, I don't know where my car is. And then I start thinking this, what if someone stole my car? Because it couldn't be my fault, right? You had to blame somebody else. But then they introduced one of the most miraculous things of all time, a key fob. So now I make the mistake still and I go out and I go, even I know where I am in the parking lot. It does not mean I know which parking lot. I don't know exactly where it was. But you push the magic button and it starts going off. And I don't care what people think when my car goes off because I'm not lost anymore. But wait, it's one thing for me to tell you about getting lost in a mall 
and can't find where I parked. But what if I told you that I also got lost one time in the Colorado Rockies and I was backpacking. This isn't true, so don't get your hopes up. (laughs) But what if I told you I was in the backpacking and got stranded, separated from everybody else, and I went without food and water for days, and finally, before I died, they rediscovered, they found out where I was, and they had emergency mountain crews come in and life-flighted me out. Totally different story, isn't it? See, let me tell you this. The gospel is not being lost in a mall. It's not, say, a few extra minutes, but I just whip the key fob out and everything's good. That's not the gospel. The gospel is an unbelievable, heavenly rescue mission by a holy God who by all rights should judge us in our sins. But he doesn't. Instead, he offers us forgiveness through the sacrifice of his son. That's amazing. That's amazing. Do you get it? That's why the psalmist in his second question says this. Not only why do we need it, because we are full of iniquity. But he says this, where do we get it? That's what he said. Listen, do you understand how lost you are? Verse 4 will make sense. Look at it. But, see the little word contrast? See, see it, here's what one comes to. Oh, the sweet music of that one little word. See, we are lost in our iniquities. We have no hope because we can't stand before God. And the psalmist says, but let me interject this little contrast. But with you. See what he's saying? But with you, there is forgiveness. You can't get it anywhere else, but you can with God. The very same God who is holy and has the right to punish and judge your sin for eternity. Here's what he says. But here's what God's bent is. It's toward forgiveness. The verb for forgiveness, forgive, forgiving, is used over and over in the Psalms. The only one time it's used as a noun is this verse. You say, what does that mean, Pastor Walker? It means this, that God isn't just a God who does forgiveness and gives forgiveness. He is forgiveness. It's his character. It's his attribute. It's who he is. And so you're not talking about someone in God who likes to dole out his forgiveness begrudgingly or sparingly. No, it is his bent. He doesn't want to judge. He will because he's holy, but he'd rather lavish his love on you. And the psalmist says, you can't find it anywhere else. Not this kind of forgiveness. It's uncommon. It's shocking grace and mercy. But the contrast is that it's Savior help, not self-help. See, the psalmist says, I was in exile for so long because I thought I could handle it myself. See, there's two ways to get forgiveness in this psalm. You can work for it, or you can wait for it. Every single person in this room this morning, you are in one of those two places. You can get it with him, or you can try to get it with you. With him, there's steadfast love. With him, there's plenteous redemption. With him, there's forgiveness. With you, there is no hope. There's no hope. 
Eight times in eight verses, the psalmist says, Lord, 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 why? Why does he say it over and over again? Because his only hope cannot be found in himself. It is in God. God is the only, it is the turning point, this point, but with you, God. Not with me, not with my good works. See, not with who I am. See, my only hope is your grace, not my goodness. So the Lord God is the God who says this, no matter how deep your sins are, my mercy and grace is deeper. Corey Tim Boom said this, there is no pit so deep that God's love is not yet deeper still. You might say, Pastor Walker, you don't know my iniquities. I know that little definition, veer off the path, miss the mark. I know that, but you just don't know. Hey, I haven't just gone off, you know, on the road. They have those little things they, into the, cur- or into the, the uh, you know what I'm talking about? The r- makes it sound like, brrr, you know, that kind of thing. That, that help you what I'm trying to say here? Right? You go off a little bit and, and it makes the tire, makes that noise. Oh, you got to get back, right? You said, Pastor Walker, I went past the brrr, a long time ago. And I'm like off-roading, four-wheeling out there. You're not going to find me out there. Even if I've been immoral, Pastor Walker, a lot of times, yes. Even if I've been in prison for a while, yes. Even if I've been unfaithful to my spouse, yes. Even if I've had an abortion, yes. Even if my actions and my attitudes have virtually ruined so many relationships in my life, yes, there's still forgiveness with him. Even if, and you fill in the blank. See, God's forgiveness says, I know you to the bottom and I still love you. I'm still willing to pay the price for your forgiveness, which the psalmist says is called redemption, which is said twice. I don't know if you remember the musical, The Music Man, but there's a place in it where Marion the librarian, which is kind of funny, it rhymes, discovers that the main character, Harold Hill, is a con man. But toward the end of it, she kisses him on the bridge, and he realizes when she kisses him that she knows exactly what he really is who he really is. And so she says to him, you better get going before they come and get you. But you know what? He doesn't. He stays. He stays. Why? Why would he risk all of that? Because I think the movie wants you to get this. Because he's been changed by a love that knows him to the bottom and still cares still wants to risk for him, still wants to sacrifice for him. See, I believe this morning if Jesus was here, he would make a salvation impact statement. He would say this to you, and he would call you by name, and he would say this, I know your life to the bottom. I do. I know your life to the bottom. I know everything about you, things that you would never want anyone else to know, that you never say out loud. I know all of it about you. And I want you to know, I still love you. And I was still willing to pay the price for your redemption so that you could be forgiven. How much would he love like that? 
Well, notice the Bible says this in verse 8, that he will redeem you from all of your iniquities, not just some of them, all of them. You remember the verse where he says iniquity is the first time? He says, if you would mark all the times I've gone off the right path, if you, would mark, if you keep track of all of them, God, I have no hope. But here's a God, he's come to realize, that knows all of it and still loves them. You know, today in our culture, we are scared about what goes on our permanent record. We even have it at school at Faith Christian. You tell someone in their third grade, well, that might go on your permanent record. I go, third grade, come on. But everyone's afraid what's on your permanent record. Whether you did this at school, you got suspended, or you got expelled, or at your job. You do something wrong, out of line, and you get caught at it, or, 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 or it's, is it going to go on my permanent record? And we get worried about it because we think hey, everything's over if it's on my permanent record. Can I tell you this? God knows and has put all of your iniquities on your permanent record. <laughs> but he says, I want you to know I paid the price to take it all off. I love the computer because you make so many mistakes. There's this little button, D-E-L, delete. Now, there's this little thing that has the arrow going backwards. That's pretty cool to undo. But delete is better because it's gone. It's gone. You know what God says? I know you to the bottom of your life. In your sin, in your iniquity, I've counted all of them. I know, every, I know the ones you've forgotten. And in Jesus Christ, and the redemption and his love that he's paid for your sins, I push the delete button if you'll trust me. See? All your iniquities. Why, Pastor Walker? Why in the world would God ever love me like that? Well, he tells us in verse 4, there is forgiveness with you, see the purpose clause, that you may be feared. Now, I, I struggled with that this week because here's two ways I think it makes better sense in my mind. Shouldn't it say there is forgiveness with you that you should be loved? I would say if God forgives so much, he does it because he should be loved. That makes sense to me. Or turn it around. There's judgment with you, so you should be feared. But he's doing two things together that don't gel in my mind. There's forgiveness with you so that you would be feared. How does the forgiveness and the fear connect? Here's how. Because it's not an afraid fear. It's an awe fear. You know that song we sing? Listen to the words. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. What's the phrase afterwards? Jesus Thank you. Here's what it is. All my iniquities, I was, see, I wasn't just God and I weren't on great terms. No, once your enemy, but now, forgiveness, seated at your table. You know what the response to that is? Thank you. I'm in awe of you. I adore you. I worship you. I'm no longer in punishment. I'm not afraid of being punished anymore. I'm not afraid that I got to count up all my sins and somehow give an account of them. No, God, I know that you've forgiven me. It's been deleted in Jesus Christ through his blood. And see, I'm totally moved by the depths of your forgiveness on the depths of my sin. Only when you grasp 
the magnitude and the depth of your sin, will you be moved by the depth of his forgiveness? And so the psalmist asks three questions about God's forgiveness. Why do I need it? Where do I get it? Only with him. And the third thing is, how can I have it? Not work for it. Not try to do all the things on my own. Not to have my good works outweigh my bad. Not because I'm Baptist or Methodist or Lutheran or Catholic or any other thing. No, it's not that. It's not because I do certain things. No, I wait for him. See, three times it says wait. Two times it says hope. You know what it idea is? It's the looking away from yourself and looking to him. I'm waiting for him. I'm waiting for God to step into my life and do what only he can do. See, I'm hoping in him. And it's not I wish, I hope it really, no, not that kind of hope. A hope that is guaranteed. It's trust. See, this is a psalm with four stanzas with two verses each. Do you see the shift in the focus? Right now he's been completely overwhelmed by his sin. And then God breaks in and offers forgiveness. So he says, Oh Lord, oh Lord, first stanza, second one. Oh Lord, oh Lord, second one. Because he can't get over how God and his forgiveness is changing his life. But then he says to this in the next one, he says, Oh Israel. Oh Israel. Why? Because he's getting it. He's finally realizing as he travels up to Jerusalem and why there's a temple and why he can go there. Why is it possible? Because God loves his people. And God brought them out of exile and it has blown his mind to the extent that he says, God, more than watchmen for the morning, I wait for you, my God. And he's so overwhelmed about God and his forgiveness that he repeats that line twice. If you're a watchman, you watched at night. Your job was to stand on the ramparts of the wall around the city and you would watch for the enemies. And he says, you know what? Watchmen stay stay up all night long. And what they love is the crack of the sunrise just coming over the horizon because they know it's a new day and there's safety and they don't have to watch anymore because they're not going to be attacked during the day. And he says, that's what being forgiven is like. It's like going through a dark night of sin and separation and all that takes place because of my wrong choices that have taken me off God's path. It's darkness. And I've been waiting for God for so long. And he says, it's like watchmen waiting for the morning and that little crack of sunlight just shines through. And he says, that's my hope. In fact, he says it this way in verse 5, very specifically, hoping and waiting is putting your trust, listen, in his word. You see it? His word. It's what God says about forgiveness. Ephesians 1, 7, and whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. That's his word. He has promised that there is forgiveness in Jesus. Jesus has fulfilled the word of God. Malachi 4.2, the son, S-U-N, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. See, Israel was waiting through the darkness of their exile and their sin against God. They wanted a son to arise. And this son was not 
a big ball of fire in the sky. It was a person. Jesus is the son of righteousness. And in their darkest time, out of the depths, the sun rose when Jesus Christ came into this world, the son of righteousness, and it was a new day, a new day. Wouldn't that be great this morning? August 7th, Sunday morning, was the turning point in your life. See, the darkness can be over. The sun has risen with healing in his wings, and the light is now beginning to break into your darkness. And the light of the salvation of Jesus Christ is shining there for you, and it can be a new day. He has seen your life to the very bottom, and he still loves you. And still says this, if you'll trust me, if you put your faith and your hope in what Jesus did when he died on the cross and rose again on the third day, if, see, if you put your trust in him, not self-help, but Savior help, if you put your trust in him, he and he alone can forgive all of your iniquities. Put your hope in him. Put your faith and trust in him alone. And you can know the greatest forgiveness of all time in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around, we're going to close in just a moment before we go to small groups. We're going to sing the solid rock. That's what you need this morning because we've all sunk, haven't we? Out of the depths, we're down deep. Maybe some more than others, but in our sin, we have sunk. And the only one that can, can I say, out of, get us out of the depths, out of all of our iniquities, is King Jesus. That's why he came and that's why he died. See, he paid the penalty for your sin because he loved you, but God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were enemies, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Have you ever come to that realization this morning? Are you still carrying and shouldering and bearing that burden of all the sin, all the shame, all the guilt? See, you don't have to because Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. With every head bowed and every eye closed, would there be anyone here this morning and say, Pastor Walker, if I stood before God today and he got out the book of my sins, I would not be able to stand. I couldn't. But I want to come to him today because with him, there's forgiveness. I need to come to Jesus. I need to come to him and say, please, forgive all my iniquities. Take my darkness and turn it into light. May the sun of righteousness shine into your heart this morning by his rich mercy and grace that you might know that you have eternal life through him. If that is the need of your heart this morning with no one looking around, would you just raise your hand and I'll pray for you. Say, Pastor Walker, here's my hand. Pray for me. I'm, 
I need to get out of the depths. I need to have my iniquities forgiven and no forgiveness in his name. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Thank you. Appreciate your hand there as well. Anyone else? Anyone else? Just put your hand up for a moment. Thank you. And you put it right back down. In just a moment, we're going to sing. And those of you who raised your hand, I'm going to ask you to come forward. Not because coming forward makes you a Christian. Coming forward just acknowledges that you understand your need of forgiveness. And I'm going to have someone from our church take the Bible and show you how today, today before you leave this place, that you can know the forgiveness that is in Christ Jesus alone. Oh, today is the new day. If you put your faith and trust in him. But before I sing, we sing and do that, with every head bowed still, are you a Christian here this morning and you say, Pastor Walker, I've been forgiven ultimately, eternally, but I'll tell you, there's some things in my life I'm still not dealing with them. I, I, I need to come to God. I need to repent of them. I need to be forgiven. He still forgives because he still loves me. He knows me to the bottom. But I need to get some things right with him today. I really do. As a Christian, I need to. Please pray for me. Would you just put your hand up as well, and I'll pray for you at the end here just a moment. As a Christian, thank you. Anyone else? Anyone else? Thank you. Anyone else? Would you stand to your feet? We're going to pray, and then we're going to sing, and then I'm going to invite you who raised your hand to come. Let's stand together. Father, thank you from the bottom of our hearts that there is forgiveness with you. Not a person in this room today is unforgivable. There is not one. Our sins are many, but your mercy is more. Blessed be your name. I pray for those who raised their hand just a few moments ago that need Jesus, that need to know forgiveness of sins, to need to know they're saved. They need to come to the cross and let their heavy burden go to be forgiven. I pray today that you'd give them humility, brokenness, and that they wouldn't even hesitate for a moment. But as soon as the song is sung, they would walk down to the front and say, Pastor Walker, I need to be forgiven and saved. It's, may it be a new day for them. Father, for saints who raise their hands today, indicating there's some things that they're struggling with, they need to deal with them. They need your forgiveness. Again, Father, I pray that your word, your glorious forgiving word, would bring peace, cleansing, and forgiveness into their lives as well. And may all of this be for your honor and glory alone. In Jesus' matchless name I pray. Amen.